Section twenty five of A Lear of the Steps, etc., by Ivan Turgenev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Asia, Part thirteen. Can it be that she loves me? I asked myself next morning, directly I awoke. I did not want to look into myself. I felt that her image, the image of the girl with the affected laugh, had crept close into my heart, and that I should not easily get rid of it. I went to L., and stayed there the whole day, but I saw Asia only by glimpses. She was not well, she had a headache. She came downstairs for a minute with a bandage round her forehead, looked white and thin, her eyes half-closed. With a faint smile she said, it will soon be over, it's nothing, everything's soon over, isn't it?" and went away. I felt bored and, as it were, listlessly sad, yet I could not make up my mind to go for a long while, and went home late, without seeing her again. The next morning passed in a sort of half-slumber of the consciousness. I tried to set to work and could not. I tried to do nothing and not to think, and that was a failure too. I strolled about the town, returned home, went out again. "'Are you Herr N?' I heard a childish voice ask suddenly behind me. I looked round. A little boy was standing before me. "'This is for you from Fräulein Annette,' he said, handing me a note. I opened it, and recognized the irregular, rapid handwriting of Asia. "'I must see you to-day,' she wrote to me. Come to-day at four o'clock to the stone chapel on the road near the ruin. I have done a most foolish thing to-day. Come, for God's sake, you shall know all about it. Tell the messenger, yes." "'Is there an answer?' the boy asked me. "'Say yes,' I replied. The boy ran off. Part fourteen. I went home to my own room, sat down, and sank into thought. My heart was beating violently. I read Asia's note through several times. I looked at my watch. It was not yet twelve o'clock. The door opened. Gagin walked in. His face was overcast. He seized my hand and pressed it warmly. He seemed very much agitated. "'What is the matter?' I asked. Gagin took a chair and sat down opposite me. Three days ago, he began with a rather forced smile, and hesitating, I surprised you by what I told you. Today I am going to surprise you more. With any other man I could not, most likely, bring myself so directly. But you're an honourable man, you're my friend, aren't you? Listen, my sister, Asya, is in love with you. I trembled all over and stood up. Your sister, you say? Yes, yes. Gagin cut me short. I tell you she's mad, and she'll drive me mad. But happily she can't tell a lie, and she confides in me. Ah, what a soul there is in that little girl! But she'll be her own ruin, that's certain. But you're making a mistake, I began. No, I'm not making a mistake. Yesterday, you know, she was lying down almost all day. She ate nothing, but she did not complain. She never does complain. I was not anxious, though towards evening she was in a slight fever. At two o'clock last night I was awakened by our landlady. "'Go to your sister,' she said. "'There's something wrong with her.' I ran in to Asya, and found her not undressed, feverish, and in tears. Her head was aching, her teeth were chattering. 
"'What's the matter with you?' I said. "'Are you ill?' She threw herself on my neck, and began imploring me to take her away as soon as possible if I want to keep her alive. I could make out nothing. I tried to soothe her. Her sobs grew violent. And suddenly, through her sobs, I made out—well, in fact, I made out that she loves you. I assure you, you and I are reasonable people, and we can't imagine how deeply she feels and with what incredible force her feelings show themselves. It has come upon her as unexpectedly and irresistibly as a thunderstorm. You're a very nice person, Gagin pursued, but why she's so in love with you, I confess, I don't understand. She says she has been drawn to you from the first moment she saw you. That's why she cried the other day when she declared she would never love anyone but me. She imagines you despise her, that you most likely know about her birth. She asked me if I hadn't told you her story. I said, of course, that I hadn't. But her intuition's simply terrible. She has one wish, to get away, to get away at once. I sat with her till morning. She made me promise we should not be here to-morrow, and only then she fell asleep. I have been thinking and thinking, and at last I made up my mind to speak to you. To my mind, Asia is right. The best thing is for us both to go away from here. And I should have taken her away to-day, if I had not been struck by an idea which made me pause. Perhaps, who knows? Do you like my sister? If so, what's the object of my taking her away? And so I decided to cast away all reserve. Besides, I noticed something myself. I made up my mind to find out from you. Poor Gagin was completely out of countenance. Excuse me, please, he added. I'm not used to such bothers. I took his hand. You want to know, I pronounced in a steady voice, whether I like your sister? Yes, I do like her. Gagin glanced at me. But, he said, faltering, you'd hardly marry her, would you? How would you have me answer such a question? Only think, can I at the moment? I know, I know, Gagin cut me short. I have no right to expect an answer from you, and my question was the very acme of impropriety. But what am I to do? One can't play with fire. You don't know Asia. She's quite capable of falling ill, running away, or asking you to see her alone. Any other girl might manage to hide it all and wait, but not she. It is the first time with her, that's the worst of it. If you had seen how she sobbed at my feet to-day, you would understand my fears." I was pondering. Gagin's words, asking you to see her alone, had sent a twinge to my heart. I felt it was shameful not to meet his honest frankness with frankness. "'Yes,' I said at last, "'you are right. An hour ago I got a note from your sister. Here it is.' Gagin took the note, quickly looked it through, and let his hands fall on his knees. The expression of perplexity on his face was very amusing, but I was in no mood for laughter. "'I tell you again, you're an honourable man,' he said. "'But what's to be done now? What? She herself wants to go away, and she writes to you and blames herself for acting unwisely. And when had she time to write this? What does she wish of you?' I pacified him, and we began to discuss as coolly as we could what we ought to do. 
The conclusion we reached at last was that, to avoid worse harm befalling, I was to go and meet Asia, and to have a straightforward explanation with her. Gagin pledged himself to stay at home, and not to give a sign of knowing about her note to me. In the evening we arranged to see each other again. "'I have the greatest confidence in you,' said Gagin, and he pressed my hand. "'Have mercy on her and on me, but we shall go away to-morrow anyway.' he added, getting up, for you won't marry Asia, I see. "'Give me time till the evening,' I objected. "'All right. But you won't marry her.' He went away, and I threw myself on the sofa and shut my eyes. My head was going round. Too many impressions had come bursting on it at once. I was vexed at Gagin's frankness. I was vexed with Asia. Her love delighted and disconcerted me. I could not comprehend what had made her reveal it to her brother. The absolute necessity of rapid, almost instantaneous decision exasperated me. Marry a little girl of seventeen, with her character. How is it possible? I said, getting up. End of section 25